Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Akasha Galia Wow Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, the day or maybe the night is saved by none other than Cy Peter Winston Wisdom, or should that be Peter Paul Wisdom? In any case, we've got nightmares aplenty plus a bevy of vamps who can't get booted back to hell fast enough. Excalibur number 119 was originally published in April 1998, and the creative team is Ben Rob on writing, Jim Calafiore on pencils, Rob Hunter on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkness and Comicraft on letters, and Frank Peteris and Jason White on editing. You believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Welcome to the final sextet of episodes on our three-year journey to the heart of what used to be the men book of sorts. But who are we starting with myself? This is surely old hat by now, but just in case, I am Dr. Anna Picard. I enjoy sexy, gendery convos about comics and pop culture over at Sequential Scholars and often involving my favorite fuzzy, unofficial client, Kurt Wagner. I'm also someone who I think enjoys classic exiles more than my co-hosts, so I was at least a bit excited to have Fiore penciling this one. I'm less excited about the rest of it, but we'll get to it when we get to it. First, we need to finish our probably unnecessary introductions. Mav, what's the state of your subconscious this week? I'm really, really, really deeply invested on how you knew both of Pete Wisdom's possible middle names. That is, um, <laughs> I don't... Sin. One of our one of our friends of the pod, personal friends, has a whole Pete Wisdom podcast. If I didn't know I... that, it would be a betrayal of him. <laughs> I know. I just like it's just for it to come up like that. I was just like, huh. I mean, there's a lot of comic book knowledge just floating around my brain that is absolutely useless. On the most recent episode of my other podcast, I explained what Zuvimbis were, and yet I did not know Pete Wisdom's middle name and. <laughs> Will not remember it tomorrow. <laughs> Go read the Comics XF Pete Wisdom Primer written by yeah. one Dan Grote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure. And and actually, now here's the funny part. I have read the Comics XF yeah. <laughs> Pete Wisdom Primer written by Dan, one it Dan Grote. Stack. It didn't stick. I still would not have remembered. Like, not to save my life would have been. Like, actually, no. I would have been able to come up with, with Paul as a joke. Because if you said, what is Pete yeah. Wisdom's middle name? I would have been like, as a joke, Paul or maybe Mary, mm -hmm. but like, <laughs> I would not have. Oh, wow. That was... Anyway. Um, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. Uh, I'm a teaching assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh, where I teach classes about comics and gender and sexuality and literature and cultural studies and all kinds of weird, crazy stuff. And oh, yeah. And also video games and pop culture. It's fun. And I'm the co-host of this show and another show called Box Popcast. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to talk about today's book. I'm actually excited. I don't think it's good, but I'm excited to talk about it. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I, well, I think it's better than the last version of this exact same story that we had. So I'm going to yes. get that. Yeah. I, yes, it is better than the last version of this exact same story. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> we'll get into it. <laughs> Andrew, I'm scared to ask, but what's haunting you this week? I, I'm still dealing with Emily Carroll because we, we did a unit in sequential mm -hmm. scholars and her stuff like sticks in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann of Sequential Scholars, St. Jerome's University, and the recently released book, The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men, which I have said many times into a microphone in the last three weeks. <laughs> is it is it currently on sale 
as part of the U Texas Press holiday sale. I think it probably is. People should buy it direct from the publisher. Oh, I don't know that. Yes, I will soon, but check the website. I think it's on sale until January. You can probably get a super good deal right now. Always buy direct from the publisher when you can. That's That's my promo for both of our books. Any of the fabulous books published by University of Texas Press. We have the distinct pleasure of being joined this week by a fabulous fellow comic scholar and first time guest in Dr. Eric Wesselman. Hello, Eric. Hello, thank you for having me. We are so thrilled to have you. You reached out a while back and we are finally able to fit you into the podcast. Really looking forward to talking with you, given your areas of expertise about some of the issues in this comic. Let's get your bio out of the way and we'll come right back to you for your comics origin story. So Dr. Eric Wesselman is a social psychologist who studies the dynamics of social inclusion and exclusion in daily life. He has taught several classes connecting psychology to topics such as popular films, fandom, horror entertainment, and the X-Men media franchise. He has also contributed chapters to 10 volumes of the popular culture psychology series, including Spider-Man Psychology, Stranger Things Psychology, and Wonder Woman Psychology, and regularly discusses the overlap between psychology and pop culture topics at conventions both local and national. I know you've got some ongoing projects as well that we'll let you hype at the end. So Eric, with first time guests, we got to do comics origin stories. So let's get into yours. When and how did you first fall in love with this medium that we affectionately refer to as funny books? Well, as an origin, it didn't involve any sort of uh, radioactive materials or anything like that. Thank Um, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I don't recall exactly when I first started reading comics, but uh, some of my earliest memories involved my parents buying me random ones. Um, I know I started reading specific titles consistently with Jim Lee's run on uh, starting with X-Men number one, which was the offshoot from the main Uncanny series in 91. My passion for the series only grew uh, with the animated series in 92. Um, I also got hooked on Superman with the Death and Return of Superman saga that ran from 1992 to 93. Uh, I stopped reading comics regularly in the late 90s, but then picked them up again uh, in the mid-aughts, and especially now digging into all of the back issues that I missed uh, that have been now collected digitally. Oh my goodness, all of the back issues that you missed is quite a task. Mm-hmm. But um, let me ask you about the scholarly practice a little bit, and we'll get into it a little bit more through that. Like, what's the origin of you incorporating comics into your scholarship? So um, I'm very uh, blessed to be at a university in an apartment that really kind of allows me a lot of flexibility to sort of play in, in different areas. Back around 2016, uh, my colleague, Dr. Scott Jordan, and I met uh, Dr. Travis Langley, who is a fellow psychologist Ah, and popular culture Mm -hmm. nerd. Uh, Dr. Langley was editing a series of anthologies using psychological research to analyze comics, movies, etc., as you noted in um, uh, my introduction. Now, we loved the idea and asked how we could get on board. Dr. Langley said, yeah, if you can get me a couple chapters in a couple weeks, uh, we can go. (laughs) So, you know, it's, uh, of course, uh, the turnaround is much quicker than most academics are used to, but... Our passion for all things nerdy uh, got us through that, and uh, we've been writing for the anthologies ever since. I've also been working comics into my teaching. Uh, I have a few fledgling comic studies essays in the works that, you know, I will get to as they (laughs) come in and out of my uh, workspace. So someday they'll be published. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the the pop culture psychology series a little bit. Like, what's your approach to that kind of scholarship? I know a lot of those collections kind of use these pop culture texts to kind of introduce complex concepts from psychology and sociology. I mean, what's your kind of approach to doing that? Why do you think it's a valuable thing to do? So, I mean, that's, you know, uh, broadly how I approach it as well. Uh, Many of the the folks who contribute to that are sort of more of applied uh, clinical counseling areas. I'm more of a basic social psychological research. So uh, that's kind of the niche that I fill. I I feel that uh, using these types of stories um, are very, very useful talking to both, you know, the general public as well as even, um, you know, college students, for example. You know, coming up with using these stories Uh, just a different way to illustrate the concepts. You know, we can come up with real world examples of some type of phenomena, but those don't always have the same attraction to all students. You know, further, sometimes real world examples have, you know, direct social or political aspects that can sometimes make people defensive. Uh, Mm -hmm. So using Mm -hmm. fictional stories, you know, we can get around those knee-jerk defenses. You know, it's not unique to comics. It works for movies, too. One of the first chapters that I wrote for that series uh, was on Marvel's Civil War. And when I started teaching that, uh, it was during a seminar, and that was also during the, um, the, the 2016 primary presidential debates when certain candidates that I will not name uh, started talking about uh, travel bans and other types of things. And 
I was just talking about, you know, Superhero Registration Act and uh, all those things. And then a student raised their hand and they're like, hey, isn't this kind of like, and then insert <laughs> current topics. And I was like, yes. And I, I actually literally danced when that happened because I was like, you've, yeah. you've passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've made the connection. My job here is done. Yeah, I liked your sort of explanation of it there that can, it can be sort of an accessible window into some of these topics. I mean, related to that, let me ask you a little bit about, I know you taught a course specifically about X-Men and we've all we've all taught some X-Men from time to time. I could hear Andrew gasping. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners, as well as those present, would love to hear how you kind of approached that and what were some of the things that you focused on? Like, how did you choose to structure a course like that? Was it movies, films, comics? Like, how did you approach it? So uh, a, a little of all. Uh, it was it was hard to limit myself, uh, but I tried. One of the most common connections that you know people make between psychology and the X books is the sort of the dynamics of stereotypes and prejudice, right? The, the mm-hmm. mutant prejudice metaphor, uh, and that's that's certainly very useful. And I, I did spend a lot of time on that. But my um, my primary research and training focus on the dynamics of, of social inclusion and exclusion, and that's something that we've all experienced to different degrees in our lives regardless of our personal backgrounds or identity categories. People are inherently social and we get various psychological benefits from our interpersonal relationships. You know, some key ones that I focus on, a sense of belonging, a positive self-concept, and even a sense of meaning. Uh, And so I use those three core psychological needs to frame the entire class and select specific X stories um, and psychological studies to teach. I spent a lot of time on the comics and animated shows, uh, particularly the 90s animated series, which was, you know, what I grew up on. And the the films, um, that kind of comes in towards the end uh, for the final projects. I give the students a couple different films to choose from. What, how did you kind of, I'd just be curious about how you structured it. Like, did you structure it kind of like historically or thematically? Like, how did you, how did you narrow down from the vast library of X-Men texts out there in terms of stuff you wanted to focus on? So it was much more thematically. um, And I, I tried to sort of use those three needs that I mentioned, starting with belonging, then identity. Then I sort of moved off into meaning and other types of more specific topics I jumped around a lot in time, which is probably the the biggest challenge. So I would spend time, the students would read the psychological papers, as well as the X texts outside of class. Okay, yeah. And then I would spend time in lecture, oftentimes sort of setting the stage for, you know, if there were little footnotes that they needed to understand certain characters, or, you know, if there was something that was going on in other books, or, you know, even sociopolitically at the time, that kind of contextualized the stories. I would use that lecture time to do that. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I lean so much into the animated series is uh, it, that one was created basically for non or by fans for non-fans, right? And so, yes, there is some backstory that maybe kind of helps, but they tried to tell a reasonably self-contained story um, for newcomers. Uh, so I, I started the semester with uh, the Night of the Sentinels two-parter just to kind of establish the shared universe. Gotcha. I mean... You know, we just want to know which comics you taught, Eric, <laughs> because we're always like struggling. I mean, we did a whole podcast on over on Vox Pop about X-Men syllabus, trying to figure out which comics we'd put in an X-Men course. So I love that you start with that, with that Night of the Sentinels. That's a, that's a really cool pick. But I mean, you don't have to tell us everything you taught, but I would be curious to hear, you know. No, please tell us your, everything some, you taught. Some, yeah. some, <laughs> of your other, some of your other choice picks. I don't, I'm not putting you on the spot, Eric. You don't have to recite the syllabus for us. Okay, no, fabulous. But like, yeah. <laughs> what were you what were some of your other picks for that course and like you know anything that you found particularly effective i'd love to hear about it so let me let me try to dredge, dredge it up in my memory because it was a couple semesters ago the last time i taught it and yeah i know i see like that's forever. why i knew it was going to be a bad question because people asked me that know. too and i was like what did i teach it was six months yeah ago anna why'd you do that yeah. I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I feel like some anonymous presence peer pressured me. I can't say who it was. But. Uh, well, I'll, I'll pull what's in my memory now, and I'm happy to, to email you my syllabus as well. So, for example, I taught the, the, the Dark Phoenix Saga, one of those ones that I thought was uh, useful, not just for kind of um, an iconic story, but, but also to, to teach a little bit of Jungian psychology, as well as uh, to talk about uh, the psychology of antiheroes, how we uh, sort of digest those narratives. Uh, I also use that, and I, I typically use it on a week where the students 
aren't going to be there because of some type of holiday. So they have the entire week and I have them watch all the animated series and then read both the published ending and then the original ending uh, that came out. The the untold story, I think, is what it was later published as. And then they have to kind of weigh in on which was their favorite ending and why. And we also talk about the challenges with um, adapting storylines to different mediums. I like the idea of doing that. So I've done a lot of stuff on adaptation theory, but I teach literature and cultural theory. It never occurred to me to do it as psychology. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm always interested how people from sort of like with like slightly, a slightly different focus sort of approach different things. Cause I, I feel like when I'm teaching it, I like, I'm always, I mean, as much as we talk about how the mutant metaphor doesn't work and maybe gets over-focused on in X-Men mm-hmm. comics, I always end up going to something that's going to allow me to talk about representation, but there's just so many other avenues and obviously like intersectional avenues to approach these texts. So I'm just always curious to hear how, how other people approach it. it always gets me thinking. Yeah. We spend time talking about, uh, uh, representation as well. Uh, some of my more recent research is, is looking at representation as a form of, of social inclusion and lack of as a form of systemic exclusion and the mm-hmm. dynamics within that. Yeah, and I mean, X-Men, perfect for that, right? Well, let me ask you a little bit specifically about Excalibur. What is your familiarity with Excalibur, Eric? And if you don't have familiarity, it is okay, but I do have to ask. So I read, as I've been, you know, going in and out of all the different <laughs> back issues of things. I, I read probably the first three volumes of the initial run. All right, all right. And then uh, got sidetracked into other books. Fair. And then I've got, I, you know, read the occasional uh, issue here and there. So I haven't quite made it up to, uh, I noticed that the reference in this issue to, uh, was it Zero Tolerance? I, I haven't read that era yet. I'm still earlier than that. <laughs> I'm aware that it's coming. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's all good. So we're kind of dropping you into slightly unknown territory here, I, I would assume. Yeah, I'm familiar with, with pretty much all the characters, though. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. I'll be curious to like how you relate to their psychology as displayed in this comic and whether it resonates with you. So let's get to that. Uh, we'll do our issue summary and we'll come right back to you for some of those first impressions, Eric. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely wouldn't make you read two different versions of essentially the same nightmare story within the same run of comics, but we would make you listen to a podcast about it as evidenced by this plot summary. Can you tell I'm tired on this, like our 130th episode? <laughs> but I'm always happy to be here with all of you. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Excalibur number 119 opens mid-dream, or should I say mid-nightmare. Kurt, Colossus, Kitty, Megan, and Doug Luck are trapped in nightmares created specifically for them by the appropriately named villain, Nightmare. Throughout, the evil Banff army looks on, goading Nightmare to inflict even greater pain and suffering while continuing to torture poor Lockheed. In Kurt's dream, our fearless leader is forced to watch helplessly from Professor X's wheelchair as the mob that tried to kill him back in Weinseldorf becomes a mob led by Bastion, then leading Operation Zero Tolerance in books that aren't this one, who tries to kill Professor X. Piotr Rasputin, meanwhile, has become a famous artist, so much so that he's forced to acquiesce to signing a lovely lady's ample chest. But all is not well in celebrity artist land as Piotr is haunted by visions of his dead family. Kitty, meanwhile, is regressed to a teenager, forced to listen to her bickering parents, and Dougluck finds himself forced back into a collective, while Megan has the nightmare she always has, looking not pretty in front of Brian, this time at their wedding. But with Pete Wisdom, it appears Nightmare has met his match. Wisdom easily breaks free of the illusion, then leads Nightmare on a tour of each member of Excalibur, breaking the illusion in turn, demonstrating their character growth in theory. The team successfully vanquishes Nightmare, who claims he's still one since he's gathered valuable intel about the team for a mutual friend. Finally, Excalibur contemplate their iffy victory before leaving Kitty and Pete Wisdom alone to have an important talk. We will visit that important talk next issue but for now coming right back to you eric what if anything particularly interested you or stood out to you about this issue what are you particularly dying to discuss please tell me there's something eric (laughs) um yeah so uh there were a couple different things that uh sort of struck me as i read given my research on you know social inclusion and uh exclusion um Mm -hmm. i found the interesting sort of threads that came up among many characters right there's you know know, the the tension between kitty and peter there's the bamps uh and as well as colossus and megan so i i I saw a lot there that looked very familiar to what i study on a daily basis 
Uh, I also liked the end where you kind of saw how they as a team came together. Um, but we can unpack that later if you want. So I do want to unpack that. We have sort of a statement of team identity here, which is which is kind of interesting. And I think I want to kind of unpack some of these dreams in turn. But let me pick up Andrew and Mav's first impressions, and then we'll come back to you and start doing some of that more specific unpacking. Mav, how are you feeling about this one? I mean, it's... <laughs> Yes, it is better than the last time we read literally this exact story, like, you know, 90 issues ago or whatever it was. So, yay? It's barely a story is the problem, right? And and we spent a lot of time building to this with the Banffs and everything. And it's just like, yeah. oh, no, it's going to be it's going to be this. Hey, kids, it's Nightmare. You know, the least interesting thing in Doctor Strange. The least one of the least interesting issues we've ever done. We're gonna do that again. And like Nightmare could be interesting, but like oddly enough, for a, such a concept villain with so many places you can go, it goes nowhere. Um, so so like so that bothers me about it. That said, I like some of the I like some of the swings that Rob is taking here. I just feel like he misses on all of them. Like nothing here really hits for me, but I, I, I'll, you know, I, we've said it many, many times over the course of 119 episodes of, you know, comic where I, every time there's a new artist or a new writer, I'm like, you've got to give this person the chance to establish themselves as the, you know, the artist of record, the writer of record. You're you know, Ben Rob's going to be the writer of record on this book. And I want him to have his chance to establish who these characters are. And maybe that would be interesting if they're, if the book weren't going to be canceled in six issues, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. like, like that would be that, that's sort of the problem, right? Like, like to be fair, I guess he doesn't know that, but yeah. I do, and and frankly, maybe you should be able to read the writing on the wall when you have stories like this. But I know the book's going to be canceled in six issues or seven issues right now for the if you include this one, and there's there's so many gaps in what could make this interesting that like I feel like hey, big swing and you know, at best, foul tip. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, like, I mean, we'll get into it, but I just feel like there's a grain <laughs> of something interesting in each of these yes. nightmares, but yep. then, like, it doesn't go to a place that it's just really frustrating. I was like, I could fix this. I could fix I, this so easily. Literally, <laughs> literally every single one of them, I, there's like, well, what if instead, and, Ooh. but like, you know, then, <laughs> we'll like, what if instead you never use the name Bastion, then this one automatically gets better. <laughs> Well, but we no, have there's to remind no, everybody no. of the event happening beyond the pages of this book. No, we don't. <laughs> no. No, I don't. <laughs> no. But anyway, Andrew, how are you feeling about this one? I so I'm in a weird spot. I don't disagree with either of you, but I'm warmer on it. I, okay. I think I like what Rob is doing because I or sorry, let me rephrase it. I like what Rob is trying to do because yeah. I agree it, it's not executed well, but I think he's actually trying to blow up and subvert the cliche here. The idea of the nightmare reveal of the character's internal conflict and then the the like big twist is that they're fine. That they're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> They've dealt with their problems. Yeah. That's really kind of awesome and experimental, but it's, again, it doesn't quite land. Um, so yeah, no, for me, this is another interesting study in the career of a young writer. Um, someone who's doing some cool stuff, doesn't quite have it figured out yet, but as Mav said, he's taking some big swings. Yeah. 20 more issues, he'd be there. Yeah, <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, he's going to get a chance to revisit Excalibur, and I'm not sure if it's better. People have been asking us if we're going to continue, and I was like... I don't know if I can commit to like another year of podcasting about Ben Robb's post Excalibur Excalibur comics. Um, but you know, we'll see. I've never happens. read them. I've actually, I've, I, I it would I be either. It would be all new for me if we did. I, I have never well, read that run. That aspect of it is exciting to me. I have read yeah. them. Um, anyway, so let's put a pin in that Put a pin in that for now. Yeah, like I just, it's a frustrating issue, as I was saying. And again, I think my issues are going to come out as we start to unpack the individual dreams slash nightmares. I, I agree with you, Andrew, that I get the gimmick here. You know, Nightmare is showing them these nightmares, which actually aren't their nightmares. And he's kind of misread it. And, you know, actually, they're stronger than this. Except for the problem with that is that it kind of nerfs Nightmare as a villain. Yeah. Which it's, is like a little bit frustrating. You're so it's like, literally uh, the demon god of nightmares, and it's your one ability, but you're bad at it. <laughs> so, bad at it. yeah, it's having a bad yeah. day. Yeah, you know, I get that he's he's being bothered by the bamps, so maybe I'll I'll give him this one. <laughs> but 
I don't know. Let's, why? let's. Why are they there? I don't <laughs> like, know why they're there. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing, right? Like, I mean, I liked a lot of aspects of the previous issue. We had the great conversation yeah. with Jonathan about it, but just the fact that the Banffs weren't connected to this at all, and no, there are I, threads of like we're seeding a bigger conflict having to do with supernatural forces, but it's not going to come to fruition. And it just because we know that it's a little bit frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you think's happening? Okay. Well. I, I... Because, I mean, we have the, like, the, oh, a mutual friend, this is going to happen, and blah, 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 but yeah. it's just, it's not, it's not. No, I guess. Know. I mean, I guess you're right. I, I just, like, to, oh, so, and I guess, I know we're not going to get into it, so I'll, I'll leave because we're going to talk about psychology and stuff, but my my frustration with that storyline is um, the Banff storyline, while not perfect, was interesting, and then it's just like, oh, no, it was Nightmare, and he doesn't even like them, and they're going to have nothing to do with this. Like, after this issue, they're... Like, why? Why? Like, well, nothing they about have their characterization the and the change in their characterization is explained either, which, you know, like, nobody cares, but still is a little bit. We were asked to really well, invest in that in the previous issue, and yet. Right. Not. Yeah. But, but I'm, not, I'm not just, not even just their, their change from their classic characterization. I mean, the last five issues have been about them secretly behind the scenes terrorizing <laughs> Lockheed for reasons. But. Never mind, Nightmare was there, and uh, okay, <laughs> and like, like I just don't understand, and that's kind of why that that's my frustration with it. I like everything that Andrew was just talking about, and that's what we're going to talk about for the bulk of this. Like, I like the weirdness of trying to explore Nightmare's. Here, I'll pivot back to the main topic: his weird Freudian psychoanalytic take on the dreamscape. That's interesting. And to say, no, the dreamscape's not a nightmare. I'm I'm going to use Piotr because I think he's the most interesting. No, it's awful. But I have come to peace with the fact that my family is gone. That is horrific and awful and poignant and amazing. And I wish I could concentrate on that, which we're going to do artificially because we have this show. But I wish I could concentrate on that naturally when reading it, except that I'm sitting here going, yeah, but what are all these bamps around? Like it, it, it distracts right. me from what I think the interesting point should be when i'm reading it for real i was very distracted by the implication that piotr's contemporary art should be in the louvre a place that does not display contemporary art which made He's me really good. strongly the mega picture? <laughs> <to> question, <laughs> really strongly question his knowledge of the art world in general but anyway some of the things or that i got per- hung up on perhaps ben rob did not bother to google it <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. it was one of those things where it just seemed like such an obvious fact that i was like wait am i wrong and then i spent way too long looking at it i was like has this ever happened have they ever hosted a contemporary art show and um, the answer is like sort of maybe for like the most famous contemporary artists in the entire world they've had a little tiny wing but like yeah no this is not based no, on it, this is a dream thing yeah this is a- <laughs> yeah which yeah. is just like hilarious it's like a 12 year old's dream about being an artist i'm gonna be in the loop and it's like okay well you should have been born 400 years you ago but sh- good yeah luck. it means you're dead okay yeah but- <laughs> And happened for quite some time, yes. Anyway, I've done enough bitching. Let's start getting into some of these dreams. We'll bring you back into the conversation, Eric. So we start off with Nightcrawler's dream, which feels appropriate. He's the leader of the team and he has the dream that's about leadership. So, I mean, I know this is a character that you're obviously familiar with. And I think, you know, this story harkens back to his origin story. So it is sort of a story that I think should be pretty identifiable to to anybody who knows a little bit about this character. So I'm curious about your, your reaction to it. Did you find that this story helped you understand something about Nightcrawler as a character? Did it feel like a productive nightmare to you? I think certainly if someone hasn't read a lot of the, you know, sort of mainline X books, right? So I I have read um, most of up till this point, Uncanny X-Men and and X-Men. So Nightcrawler feeling connected to Xavier as a, a mentor certainly didn't surprise me. You know, showing that sort of reversal is is kind of interesting because that's a key moment where outside of his found family and the circus, that was the first time someone who he didn't know reached out to him with compassion. So that was a very key Mm -hmm. moment for him. You know, and, and this idea of feeling like he isn't good enough, I mean, that's that's something that they've played with in other uh, other times when he was in charge uh, of various different teams. I did find the, the, the him being in, there's a particular panel where he falls out of the chair, right? And it um, yeah. obviously it has him sort of in the place of Xavier, who's paraplegic, but he it precedes that with talking about his agility and his powers, and he doesn't have those. So um, I 
that struck me as being important. Um, I would like to ask the creators why they thought that important to sort of center, but it just did seem to, to kind of stick out to me. Yeah, it stuck out to me too. And that was another one of those things where it's like, there are grains of interest here, you know, Kurt being put in Xavier's position and having to reckon with the burdens of leadership is interesting. And I mean, that's consistent with his leadership journey. I mean, goes mm-hmm. all the way back to Nightcrawler's TechNet, right? And him taking inspiration say, from Xavier. Yeah. Literally, we did that story. <laughs> so like that's that's not out of step with what his hero's journey has been and again that emphasis on him specifically fearing disability is really interesting because he's gone through that story as well you know he did mm-hmm. have you know what is for him a disability in terms of his teleportation not working the way that it used to so there's a lot about this nightmare that makes sense to me and yet the resolution of it doesn't offer me anything productive in terms of Kurt's ability to overcome these fears you know it just sort of happens with like a snap of the fingers and I wish that it's like he's throwing so much out here and yet this could Mm -hmm. be a whole story like delving into Kurt's feelings about this and yet it's just sort of over explained in the narration and then not followed up on I don't know I can hear you wanting to jump in Mav so go ahead well okay so I think the flaw is that Rob wants this to be a team building moment right he wants mm. this to be a thing where no all of us we are stronger than this and we have all managed to do this and I, I think the idea is that it is interesting that what relates these five people to each other or six people to each other is that they're all able to overcome their trauma and be better people for it but the more interesting story is how any individual one of them overcomes their trauma like it like it's not because it's because he's got to get through all of them. He's got to get through Wisdom and Megan and Nightcrawler and Kitty and Piotr. And like, he's got to go through all... Oh, and Doug. He They only get one page of resolution each because we've got to move on to the next one. I mean, in fact, the motif of it is even... Look, I'm just changing the channel because I got to move on, right? Like, that's, mm-hmm. like, like that's, the, that's the storytelling motif of doing it. Flick, next channel. And that should be... It could be a much more interesting story if we got to see how does kitty deal with this differently than kurt because there are different people who have different nightmares right how does Piotr deal with it differently how does megan but we don't have get how any of them deal with it we just get pete wisdom everyone's favorite character saying nah he's good <laughs> you know <laughs> and like no nah, my, my buddy kurt he's just stronger than this moving on also my girlfriend kitty stronger than this moving on also pete uh, Rasputin, who I don't even like, but tough dude, moving on. Like, that's what you get. And it, and it becomes uninteresting because because what he wants to use it for does not afford him to spa- the space to make it a more interesting story. I do think the Kurt story, though, has a, a little bit of potential for revelation in it. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I think with Rob in particular, he's been cultivating that aspect of Kurt's um, carrying the burden, mm-hmm. the, like the burden of Xavier's dream kind of thing. So to me, the idea that that every single mutant to Kurt is Kurt in that moment when he was at his lowest point, right? Mm-hmm. And the sense of anxiety that would create around that sort of burden of leadership. To me, that's actually quite consistent with the way Rob has been writing. Yeah, um, it just needs more than a page. Point. Well, it, it does. But for me, where it falls flat in execution is um, in the sort of later stages of it. He talks to it, speaks to it more about being like guilt for um, not knowing where Professor X is or guilt for losing his mentor, where to me it was much more about um, Kurt having to become the mentor and struggling with that the same way he did even back in X-Men when he was put in the leadership role. And like even like the reckoning with disability as like struggling with some of the restrictions of leadership in like a metaphorical context. Mm -hmm. But like, I mean, the resolution though, like I think he's got almost the worst resolution out of anybody because he just decides he can walk again and then apparently kills bastion (laughs) and is like this is my solution i'm gonna and i'm just like well this should be a really dark conclusion for kurt because apparently the solution to becoming a good leader is to go against everything he believes and kills them and kill the villain which i'm like that is actually i know he's a robot but it's still like (laughs) that isn't something that kurt would normally do and so it's like this should actually be kind of a big deal and kind of a dark moment and it's played like a victorious moment that seems like it undercuts the first part of the story. And this was, I just I didn't know Kyoto's what to make of worse. this. I think okay. yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to go to that. Because, yeah. Yeah. Well, because we can, it, it, 
It's the most, to me, that's the one that's the most interesting. Not because Colossus is necessarily my favorite character and not even because Eliana's in it, who is one of my favorite characters, but mm. because that is a, you know, the idea of losing your entire family in dark ways. Like none of them, it's not like even his parents die of old age or anything. Everyone he loves has been killed in a dark, merciless way. I mean, the peaceful one is Ilyana. Is the, the best, like, if the best you can hope for from somebody you love is that they are killed by a horrible disease, that's yeah. dark. And it's awful. And, like, you know, and the solution is... Nah, I, I I just decided I'm gonna be good with it. Like that's and and then he helps them dig their graves. That's like what he's doing yeah, there. It's yeah. just like yeah, no, no. Me and my me and my family, we're gonna dig a grave. Bye, guys. You know, nice nice seeing you again. Thank you for the dream. And and like and it's even there. Like like Ilyana leaves. Like yeah, don't forget me, big brother. I want snowflake. Bye. Like what is that? <laughs> like that is so. It has the potential to be dark and troubling and like I. To me, like I, I'm just—I mean—the idea of losing uh, my siblings, my parents, like, like that is dark to be. And not again, not that they just died. That's bad enough. That they were murdered by the KGB and by essentially the AIDS virus after she'd already had such a life of trauma. And his brother has become a villain. Like literally everything about them should be so dark. But he's like, nah. It turns out I'm just—you know—I'm chill. Well, <laughs> Hang loose, dudes. <laughs> My issue with was with how that related to the art world thing, which I couldn't understand the connection between those two things. But I'll come back to you with it, Eric. Yeah, I know. But like, maybe, maybe, maybe we can figure this out. Yeah. Like, Eric, what did you make of, of Colossus's dream? Did you feel like this gave you some insight into this character? So I, um, I certainly, you know, throughout the writing of him, the sort of artist's heart has always been a big part yeah. of it. Um, I mean, when when Claremont was writing his first run, of course, he would always talk about you know how gentle Peter was and Petey pure heart, and uh, and they would play on that, and so that of course then his turn later uh, to joining the Acolytes after Ilyana dies from the Legacy Virus, you know, of course that was a big moment, and I'm sure a lot happened between then and this issue that I'm reading now with him in Excalibur. Um, Not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Not> much. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a problem. Okay. Well, he just showed right. up one day and he's just like, I'm good now. Bye. I feel like we're, we're missing something there. Yeah. yeah. The whole other limited series that didn't get told. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I just couldn't. Well, I was really hung up on the art world stuff because this is like the third time that Ben Robb has gone all in on like satirizing the world of high art. And I'm like, did he fail? to get into like well it's just that he has like the woman like come up and ask to sign her chest and like i mean all of her dialogue here it's about time the louvre recognized your genius it screams volumes to the oppressed and insane please you must sign my body to bridget love piotr and it's like it seems to me like a send-up on the world of celebrity avant-garde artists because she's saying all these super generic things and then asking him to sign her chest and it feels very disrespectful of the world of high art and it just is impressive to me the way that this has come up on three occasions just this real weird treatment of particularly avant-garde contemporary art and like i just I like found myself thinking too. like you think it's like sincere to me he's thinking all successful artists are warhol these weird party boys with like, you know, like, yes, sign my boobs. That's a thing that people say to artists all the time. I've been an artist. Yeah. If I could count the number of times some random woman has walked up to me and asked that of me, hold on zero. I'm at zero. That's how many times that's happened. Right. I, 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 I don't know. I think he thinks that there is an, a thing that is the rock star artist. And I think that he, thinks the essence of peter is that he could one day be it is a misunderstanding of the character or it's a desire to make the character into something else and i i, I don't think it's satirical at all because because if it's satirical what's the joke 
You know, what's the I mean, point? the joke is that the world of high art is shallow and vacuous while pretending to be more than that. And Piotr has to realize that by grounding himself in his actual traumas as opposed to seeking out celebrity. Mm-hmm. I guess. I, I, I don't know. It seems it seems too sincere because it keeps happening. And I don't think and it, and he doesn't learn anything from it. He's just like a he's a tortured artist because I, I feel like the, the, the point is, you know, artists, they, they have their feelings out there and he's like being I don't know. I, don't, I just I, didn't see it as a satire. I took it. Well, I guess I was it. just like reading it in the context of all of that monologuing that was present. Well, the captions that were present in that other issue mm-hmm. where Pete was in the in the um, art storage place and it was talking yeah. all about how oh these precious works of the avant garde that can only be shown to the public every five years. Like that was very heavy handed and it's like treatment of the avant garde. And I guess mm-hmm. just this following up on that, I was just like, there's yeah. something going on here. I don't understand it, but there's something going on. Also, I just have to point out like the discomfort of he's signing her chest specifically like with a Bic pen and I'm like Jesus Christ that would hurt like do that shit with a sharpie or a marker or something you're signing her chest with that what is wrong with you and you specifically drew it as that it has the Bic logo that upset me just a lot of upsetting things on this particular page ow ow but anyway I don't know I got a bit hung up on it I have signed a chest before but not as an artist I was a pro wrestler. It makes more sense uh, there. Fair. That is fair. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not with a big pen. I hope not. No, no. We have Sharpies. Exactly. Exactly. Come on. Yeah. Let's let's like bring some dignity to the proceedings here. I mean, Andrew, what were your thoughts about it? Does, did anything make sense to you about this? I just still can't for the life of me understand the connection between this high art thing and the and the family thing. It just it's losing me. Um, no, it, it didn't make sense. It, it is very kind of um, discontinuous. You might argue that he has that thread of like guilt in terms of being removed from the rural existence. And you could argue that the sort of cosmopolitan yeah. ar- artist's life is antithetical to that. But I feel like that's a stretch and that would have need to or would need to have been communicated more effectively in the text. So it kind of just feels like we're hitting on like the three things about Colossus that we all know. Right. Uh, and, and trying to present them as um insight to me that one didn't land at all really uh similar to matt i just i just found it weird uh and not really evoking anything sort of new on the emotional spectrum i just didn't understand his even his ambitious to be like ambition to be like a famous artist because i just never took that to be his artistic ambition and it's a take that I'm like, sure, pursue that if you want. I mean, I do like that it's sort of critiquing his selfishness and his self-centeredness, but it just actually didn't really jive with with him as a character to me, but I don't know. Yeah, same. I don't know. Let's talk about some of these other ones because we've got a few more here. The kitty one is almost like, I don't really know what to do with it but maybe i'll let you choose eric like of the remaining ones that we have so we have the Douglock one and the kitty one and the megan one if you had to choose one that you found particularly interesting and affecting of those three i mean which one were you most intrigued by so i would have to say that and some of this may be because i you know have read more of the other characters it's of all of them Douglock is the one that i know the least like i know Mm -hmm. cypher (laughs) but I think just from my own expertise, what struck me about Doug Locke, right? So is we have um, various psychological needs, as I noted earlier, and then some that people will talk about is not just our need to belong, but our need to stand out as an individual. And these things can sometimes be at odds. Uh, and so there's one theory that I've drawn on before in my research called optimal distinctiveness theory, which argues that to reach this sort of balance point where we feel like we belong, but we also, and we fit in, but uh, we also feel like we stand out that we're, we, we're unique. We need to find social relationships, friend, friendship groups, fan groups, just some type of set of relationships that allow us to, to feel both in equilibrium. And it strikes me as Doug Locke, of course, being part of that collective would have been, you know, all belonging, but no individuality from optimal distinctiveness, or even as far back as uh, Alfred Adler's theories. And so this is him kind of working hard to to assert his individuality. Um, but that, that, that was the one that stuck out to me. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the art here was quite effective. I feel like it was one of the pages that felt the scariest, <laughs> like in terms of being like an actual nightmare. And we get the callback um, to Phalanx Covenant with, with the villain here getting represented. I mean, there are issues with it in terms of Doug Locke's story keeps changing and like 
what actually defines him keeps changing but i like that read on it a lot i think the it's another one of those ones where it's sort of there there is definitely this grain of something interesting here and the idea that doug Locke wants to assert his individual individuality in a specifically human sense against this this force that's trying to do something different is is great but then i just it's frustrating because like back in excalibur number 115 he specifically said he wants to be back in the phalanx again and doesn't want to be an individual so i'm like oh boy can you just decide can you just pick because well, it's, it's, it's to be fair he'd, he'd never kissed a girl yet then that's true that's true so now you know horniness to do well, that for you <laughs> <laughs> looking at some of the theories that um that, I, that i've drawn on this is sort of a daily tension, a struggle. And there have been some really clever researchers who have come up with ways of basically manipulating people's state-like feelings. So they've, one is where they gave people a bunch of like personality measures and then they, they really didn't care what the personality measures was, but they gave false feedback to the participants where some folks got told basically that they fit in too much and there was nothing unique about them. And then the other people got told the opposite. And then they gave these folks the opportunity to pick activities that would satisfy you know one of these two needs. And most people would pick whatever they felt they were deficient in at that one time. And again, this is agnostic to what they really came into the lab with. It was all in that moment being primed to think that they were lacking. Oh, that's interesting. This is a world before IRB. <laughs> like, how did no, this happen? Be cool with this. <laughs> you, wow. after, afterwards, there, there, there's a, a long debriefing process where you tell people okay. that people like them. <laughs> we should talk about the Megan one. I just, again, I just, the kitty one has so little going on, but I do want to talk about the kitty and Pete of it all. But I, I, I don't even, Megan, I don't I have even, the, Megan has nothing. I have, I have <laughs> nothing. I have nothing other than to just... <sighs> You know, we've been podcasting about Excalibur for a long time, and we've given the complex, full of potential, wonderful character of Megan a lot of focus on this podcast. And it is frustrating to me that this is Excalibur number 119, and we were we are rehearsing the same exact story with her again. She is an object in her own story without any psychology other than, thank God she's not ugly because her boyfriend wouldn't love her anymore. And you're like, great, great. I don't even know what to do with this other than to be like, I hate it. Let's move on. The charitable <laughs> part of it is that Nightmare's wrong, right? Like Nightmare chooses know, that as her as her um, nightmare. And it turns out, eh, no, she's good. My problem with it isn't so much that. It, my problem with it is the solution because of Pete Wisdom's narration is, no, she's good because as soon as Brian comes around, comes back that she'll be fine it's just that she's confused because we're powers and then she's in you know, we talked about it on that episode where i didn't care for the oh no her powers make her think that Piotr is in love with her when he really isn't and that's the flaw and i'm like you need to give me more than that so wisdom and how does wisdom even know any of that is sort of weird but the fact that nightmare because he's an idiot thinks he can give her a nightmare about being ugly and she's like nope i'm good i'm actually gorgeous like guess that's something <laughs> it's not i mean it's progress i guess but it's such it's such no. lame progress it's not yeah it's not i mean it's it's bad <laughs> i mean it's just like she has apparently i mean you know again could be that he's just totally wrong that she still has this fear and yet the resolution of the fear is not brian showing that he accepts her monstrous form it's like oh she was super pretty after all and actually his influence makes her super yeah. pretty not ugly so right. she doesn't have to worry about being ugly and i'm like that is so dark that is so dark and <laughs> And let's visualize that by have her sparkling, hovering naked over top of everybody. That's that's the greatest way to sell that moment for you. Oh, it just made me sad. I just don't have anything real positive to say about it. But I don't know, like maybe no. let's maybe let's conclude by thinking about the Pete wisdom of it all, because it relates to how Kitty's story kind of gets short shrift here. And I mean, there is some real darkness to Pete framing this story that I won't say I like it, but it is dark. I mean, in terms of him looking at the very young, crying teenage Kitty and feeling like he is somehow implicated in this loss of innocence and reckoning with how young his girlfriend really is. And there is a lot going on here. But I'll come back to you with it, Eric. Like, I mean, what did you make of the technique of Pete Wisdom of all characters being the one 
who kind of frames the solution to all of these nightmares? Like, was it a choice that you found effective, like, at all? Um, so, uh, specifically, um, his back and forth with Nightmare, um, he's another character that I don't know much about. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of had to sort of draw from this what I thought the creators were going for, and it seems like he's the, of all of them, he's the, the most of an outsider. He's perhaps the most morally complex you know, what we might call an anti-hero, but it sounds like not only does, you know, they all have their traumas, but it sounds like he also has done some shady things uh, that he's working through. So I guess I sort of interpreted his voice or the authors using his voice as kind of like, a, not exactly a dispassionate, outsi- a dispassionate outsider, but the one who has been embedded with them the least and perhaps also a way of trying to show that he's had some growth Again, not knowing what came before or after in these issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough. I just I just wasn't sure what to make of, of the Kitty and Pete of it all. And especially like the page where he blows the smoke ring, that's the heart, and then blows like the spear through the smoke ring, which is a very evocative image, but I just didn't really understand it and i don't know i'll come to you mav and andrew for it like andrew as a pete wisdom hater how did you feel about this choice okay i kind of like a lot of like the pete wisdom framing of this issue okay i think one of the things that enhances the tragedy of it is this idea of this character realizing how everybody's kind of okay before being forced to confront the sort of despair in front of him you know what i mean uh the idea that he's he's not gonna be i I think that's a nice kind of emotional accentuation for the tragedy of pete wisdom that we're going for in this story so i didn't hate it on that level i also think he's the right protagonist because he's diet john constantine and this is a story about a supernatural nightmare entity um so so it worked for me there um where i mean we've already talked about this but, but but where i get kind of flustered is the idea of again rob being determined to DH Kitty because I really did like the progress with that character that, yes. that Ellis contributed as much as I didn't like Wisdom. So yeah, that was that was difficult for me as well. But if you're going to make Pete Wisdom a character who I'm supposed to feel bad for, I kind of think Rob pulled it off in this one. I, I liked it. I liked the idea of facing the end of your own happiness. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I did like that too. I think he gets a comeuppance here in terms of having to reckon with what he wants from Kitty Pride, And I think that that was effective on a certain level, like the way that she feeds into his preferred version of himself. And maybe he likes the idea of her maybe more than he likes her. And I think there's a lot of potential there, but emphasizing Kitty's youth versus his age and That's how he's corrupting her takes away yeah. a lot of her agency, which I think is speaking to what you're, you're talking about, about de-aging her. And it's notable that Kitty isn't shown breaking out of her nightmare it's all about pete's reaction to kitty's nightmare which again takes away her agency and i think the idea that kitty was manipulated by pete actually makes this worse (laughs) so like she wasn't she wanted to be with him you know so i that's my problem with it right there so i agree with you i think rob wants to dh kitty i also think he wants wisdom to sort of come to grips with what's going on you can't get both and that's the problem like you cannot do both of these things i don't want kitty de-aged i am you know and i we've had other people on the show who have argued about this i like that she was allowed to grow up here i like seeing the growth however you feel about ellis i like that she is a young woman i'm gonna say 20 we don't know birthdays are weird but like she is a she is an adult woman very very clearly in ellis's run she is an adult woman very very clearly at the beginning of rob's run and what they've done here is that the narration not just not just pete wisdom but the narration has specifically called her an adolescent not even a young woman not a teen they're they're implying that she's like 14 or 15 again and it doesn't work and it makes it gross because the story is you want me to feel bad for wisdom because he's being betrayed by her and you can't have both if she's betraying him which she is in a, i mean it's not that she owes him anything but like he's she's breaking his heart and i cannot feel bad for her breaking his heart if he's a 30 year old man dating a 15 year old like you can't give it to me and and so like if you if now if he's a 30 year old man dating a 20 year old i can because he's an immature 30 and she's a very mature 20 and i so i can feel like 
I can feel okay. I can feel bad that he's like, okay, I understand why, but you know, we're just in different places and I've got to be the grown up here and I love her, but she needs to grow without me. So I've got to let her go. I can do that story with a 30 year old man and a 20 year old. I, I cannot do it with her being an adolescent. And so stop reminding me of it. And the other thing that doesn't, that doesn't work about it is I, I think I don't know how to say it. I guess Eric was talking about like without knowing much about Pete Wisdom, where he saw the character based on this story about being the most anti-hero of him. But he's not. In fact, he's the most other than Doug Locke, He's the most innocent person here. Right. Like Colossus is just coming off being an acolyte. Kurt's killed people before. He doesn't love it, but he's, you know, his but he's you know, he's he's had dark moments. And Kitty is frankly a psychopath sometimes right like she's i mean like we love kitty but like kitty her has we've done stories in this very comic about kitty coming to grips with the fact that frankly she's kind of a killer and kind of likes it and pete wisdom's origin is he's too much of a you know pacifist to be a spy that's his story well, so, even, so he's even not the that. details yeah but even the details he says here he's like my sister is dead because of me i'm like well kurt actually killed his brother so i mean it was yeah, a lot yeah. more of an active betrayal than what you did but okay right. sure feel, feel right. bad like, for yourself <laughs> right and i and, and and which and i don't even mean to minimize it it's just that he knows these things pete wisdom knows that he's only in excalibur because he was too much of a pacifist to be a spy. He couldn't handle it. And he knows that, you know, one of the things that he that made him fall in love with Kitty is that, oh, my God, she is so tough. I am like, this is the most amazing, you know, competent cutthroat woman I've ever met. And she's 19. That's why he, that's why he fell for her. So so I you can't have both. And it weirds me out that Rob really, really wants Pete to be lamenting the loss of this grown woman that he's losing while also telling me she's not a grown woman she's a child i know and pete seeing her as a child i mean again that can be his guilt talking and i mean there is an aspect of you know it's not written like that though yeah it's not written like he's like it's not written like uh like he he's not going oh my god i can't do this because she's 15 he's doing he's he's doing this woman is breaking my heart also she's 15 <laughs> like that's yeah. that's kind of it doesn't work not having any of kitty's perspective in this i mean we're gonna get a little bit more on the next issue but it's like, yes yeah this is the issue that we're talking about their you know subconscious fears and fantasies and yet it's notably absent here which is mm -hmm. anyway um let's go to some final thoughts and give everybody a chance to to circle back to to something and we'll come back to you first andrew anything else from this issue that you would like to talk about that we have not talked about with the depth and seriousness that it deserves so I think Mav, Mav maybe already touched on this, but am I right to read into the ending that, that Lockheed could have overpowered the Banffs at literally any time? <laughs> I, yes. Because he, he, that was, that, that's like, what, five issues of that story ongoing? Nope. He, all he's got to do... All he's got to do is breathe fire on him, and that's the end of it. Yeah, that's not great. I also don't understand why Lockheed couldn't get out of the cage, because Lockheed's in a cage, and all it takes is Pete Wisdom sort of absentmindedly, you know, sawing off one blade of the cage, and Lockheed's like, oh, it's on now. Okay, I'm just going to fire breath everybody, so... <laughs> It, it was very unclear. Yeah. I mean, I get that maybe this is a mystical cage um, of some kind. Right. Come on. It's vulnerable to hot knives, but not fire. Yeah. Well, you know. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it doesn't make sense with the BAMs like capturing Lockheed and all of those other issues, like you're saying. Because, like, why were they even able to do that? Yes. I share your frustration. Um, Mav, anything you would like to circle back to? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving this one. I was like, is anybody going to catch this? And I'm like, and I was like, no, no one's going to catch it. Jim Calafiore, the penciler, doesn't know where the heart is. Um, and the reason <laughs> I say that is because this issue opens with like Kurt's nightmare about like them going to kill um, Xavier by putting a stake through his heart. It clearly, very, very clearly says that. And Bastion. Oh. It yeah. takes a stake and hammers it right into Xavier's heart, which is apparently <laughs> in the center of his forehead. So I I experienced that as, as purposeful. Because <laughs> um, I also noticed that that was a little strange. Uh, and then so the story that I made in my head to make it se make sense uh, was that given that Xavier, I mean, his powers are his, his mind, right? Sure. That's always been sort of a, that, that was symbolic, 
but uh, again, I could be <laughs> just trying to make sense of something that was an oops. I mean, a stake to the brain sounds just as dangerous to me, so I don't know. But... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could have, it's just that he could have easily adjusted, because like, I think that's like Calafiore, that's the story he's telling, because we have like Xavier doing the like mental projection effect, like right mm-hmm. where the stake is going to go into his head. So there's clearly the metaphor he's working with here. But it's like all Rob had to, I know, but like all Rob had to do with the script was say like the heart of his power instead of his heart, and then you fixed it. Like <laughs> you could have fixed the word it. heart brain, and this problem goes away. Sure. <laughs> I mean, and and again, I don't know who's pro- like. Is it whose job is it to catch that? Is it? Is it um? Is it is it Rob's job as the writer? Should Richard Starkings caught it as the letterer, or you know Bob Harris as the editor? And no, Harris is actually editor in chief. Which um, I love that his um his editor in chief like subtitle in this one is dozed off because that sort of um <laughs> that sort of talks about what um about how it is. I guess, but anyway, someone should have fixed that. It bugs me because <laughs> it's like that's not where the heart is, and it bugged me so much. I mean, I don't know what I've got for final thoughts. I liked the the half splash, the mostly splash. That's a flashback to Kitty's fairy tale. That was kind mm-hmm. of fun. I enjoyed yeah. a bunch of the visual callbacks there. I do like Calafiore as an artist. You know, he's drawn some mm-hmm. issues that I really enjoyed, featuring the one and only Nocturne. Um, as we've said so many times with Phil and artists on this book, not his best work, but but still, that, that particular page brought me some nostalgic joy. Um, coming back to you, Eric, for some final thoughts about this issue. Anything that you would like to circle back to or talk about a little bit more in depth that maybe we didn't get enough of a chance? Well, one thing that de- uh, definitely occurred to me as, as we were talking is I wasn't aware that this run was going to be canceled uh, six issues later. Oh, no. So <laughs> are, are we are we to assume then that the creators knew that when this came out? I very much do Unclear. not assume he knew that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know. Yeah. But I, I just based on where the story at is at and where it will go. I do not think he knew that. No. Because okay. I could a lot see of two different... wrapping up in the final two issues mm-hmm. that suggests they weren't planning on that. Yeah. So, because in my mind, I thought, well, if, if they knew, then perhaps all of these, because, you know, what we've all, a lot of what we've been circling around is this like interesting kernels of information and characterization that could have easily taken a couple issues for every one of them. Right. So maybe this was like a yeah. crap. I got to take all everything that I want to say about all these characters and cram it in. <laughs> or perhaps these were all seeds that were being planted um, to be fleshed out with individual characters and in subsequent issues. Yeah, I mean, there are elements in which it does seem like he's building towards something. But, you know, as Andrew has said, you know, there is some mark of uh, an experienced writer to some of this stuff of like seeding plot threads that kind of don't come to fruition. But of course, we can also see the way he's bound up in the shared continuity universe around this point of the book of trying to tie it to the larger franchise. And he has had some of his plans sort of scuttled by that. And I do feel for him there. He doesn't have a doesn't have an easy task trying to pick up on this book where it was at at that time despite the fact that we've sometimes been hard on some of his particular choices but um i'm gonna end with just a a real short letter from the sword strokes letters page what really struck me about this letters page is that all of the letters are very enthusiastic and I do question whether this is representative of the nature of the letters the book was receiving at this time, because even at the heights of the Claremont and Davis issues, we had we had a few letters that talked about the issues being stinkers. But apparently, judging by this letters page, the entire fan base just absolutely adores this comic book. Um, I'm going to give you a letter from Norman Newberg. Dear Swordstrokes, what a really, really, really cool capital letters comic. The storyline is fantastic. The artwork, perfect. These past two issues, number 115 to 117, where Moira quarantines herself, are amazing. Does it mark the end of Moira and Wolfsbane? I hope not, because she's cool, young, and with a Scottish accent, she's perfect. I hope she doesn't contact the legacy virus like her mom did. Anyway, awesome book. This is the best Marvel has to offer. Norman, very enthusiastic about the book at this time. And um, I, I wish that we could all summon that same enthusiasm from this bygone era, but, but more power to him and his enthusiastic letter can, can, can you read the response to it i can but it's sort of <laughs> i was not going to because it sort of suggests that they don't do know the series is ending which counteracts some of oh, what we were saying and i was like i took it the other way 
I because it says oh, okay. the end, the beginning. We won't tell uh, Norman. Well, not, well, not at least a, for, for a month or so. But never fear, we will answer all you need to know before our 125th anniversary issue. Something cool is brewing for our team, and they won't believe their eyes. See, that makes me think that they do not know that this book's ending. Mm. <laughs> well, either they don't know or they know it could be a possibility, but unsure. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. <laughs> there are other worlds. This one is done with me. Anyway, we will wrap things up there other than to say, Eric, thank you ever so much for lending us your insight and expertise. Before we go, we, of course, need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can check out all the awesome stuff you get up to. So if you would like folks to find you online, where are some of the places that they can find you and what past, present or future projects should they check out? I know you mentioned podcasts and the like in your bio. I thought I'd kick it to the end. So the floor is yours to, to hype all of those fab things. Okay, well, uh, thank you all for uh, inviting me. I had a lot of fun. I always love uh, nerding out with like-minded people. So you can find me online at the Department of Psychology's website at Illinois State University. Uh, you can also find me uh, on the Twitter, or I guess also called X until it changes its name to something else, uh, at Eric Wesselman. I have a couple other sort of random things. I've got a, a film blog through my local uh, town-owned independent theater called uh, – the, the theater is called The Normal Theater. So if you Google Normal Theater and then Film Culture, you can find some of my essays uh, where I, I sort of connect my, my film interests with my psychology interests. We focus a lot on horror and other type of cult films. Uh, I have a, a YouTube page called Digital Golgotha Productions – where um, I have a series of podcasts that I'm slowly, or uh, vodcasts, I guess, uh, that I'm slowly but surely developing. Some other sort of con panels that I've been on that have been archived, I've tagged that site. Uh, I'm engaging on a uh, long dissection of the Death and Return of Superman run. So we uh, finished okay. the death not too long ago. Uh, it only took like eight hours to unpack that. Uh, we're going to hopefully start <laughs> the, uh, the funeral here soon. Um, and maybe someday we'll move on from Superman and talk about some of the other uh, uh, iconic runs during that time, like Batman Nightfall, Green Lanterns, um, Emerald Twilight, etc. Oh my goodness, what an era. <laughs> I, uh, I will definitely have like links to all of that stuff in our show notes. I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested in checking that out. And um, yeah, just thanks so much again for joining us, Eric. Thank you. Next, it's the breakup everyone's been waiting for. And also Marrow is there at Excalibur number 120, current <laughs> events. As always, or at least for another five episodes, we'll be there to provide scintillating play-by-play, -play, <laughs> recounting and reconsidering all the emotional highs and lows. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got fun extras and via x slash twitter and blue sky at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another haunting convo thank you eric for dreaming big with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out <laughs>